Welcome to a brand new Tuesday edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. School. We are talking about education today. Lauren, what do you remember about school? Um, so I was never like a big school person. Yeah. I, I mean, I liked school. I was fine. But I was just there. I liked being social. I liked being there and hanging out with my friends. I was one of those weird people who actually liked high school. Okay. Yeah. So, high school was a pretty good yeah. time. I feel like it gets a bad rap sometimes. Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, we never go back. Like, totally. Could you imagine going back to high school now? It would be awesome. Your your mom made all your meals for you. <laughs> like waking up at like 8 a.m. was like, oh my gosh, so early. <laughs> I, I went to track. I got to run for fun, like in the middle of the day, like cool. Yeah. I I don't think I would go back to high school. Well, I would. <laughs> homework, man. I'm really glad to not have homework anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I probably only remember the good things, but. Now, question. Were you ever asked your pronouns in high school? No, I was not. Yeah, that's all things have changed. (laughs) Things are very different than when I went to high school. Are very different. And probably many of you, many of our listeners have noticed uh, that there's a lot of controversy over education right now. I mean, people are asking questions like, are parents domestic terrorists? How much say should parents even have over their child's education? Should kids be learning about things like critical race theory and gender identity in school? These are all huge debates that are on the forefront right now. Lindsay Burke, the director of the Center for Education Policy here at the Heritage Foundation, joins Problematic Women to break down what is driving so much debate over education. She also shares some interesting new findings about the number of diversity, equity, and inclusion officers schools are employing across the country. All right, let's go ahead and dive into that conversation. I am so pleased to be joined today on Problematic Women by Lindsay Burke. Lindsay is the director of the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Lindsay, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. So education, wow, that that's a big, a big topic right now. <laughs> it's definitely making the news a lot, and it feels like we've reached a tipping yeah. point in education, a really, really pivotal moment. You know, so many parents are starting to voice concerns about, you know, things like critical race theory being taught to their kids, gender identity. They're standing up. They are saying no more. We've talked some on this show uh, about really events that have played out Mm -hmm. over the last month. The National School Boards Association sent a letter to the Biden administration. In that letter, they use the words domestic terrorism when referring to parents' actions towards school boards and school personnel. And right after that letter, Attorney General Merrick Garland, he issued a memo to the FBI asking uh, for a probe of, you know, really investigating, okay, what's actually going on with these claims of increased violence? Lindsay, are are school school boards, school personnel, are they legitimately facing threats of violence from parents? Well, first I would say if anybody thought education was a sleepy issue, <laughs> that this year has disabused no them of that notion. Yeah, I mean, everything that you listed, right, it started with, you know, all of the government-induced lockdowns during COVID and now the call from teachers unions and others for mandates uh, in schools around uh, COVID procedures and then everything with critical race theory. And now, like you mentioned, the Department of Justice and the FBI and the White House getting involved uh, with the National School Board Association 
to consider, even consider this idea of labeling parents who are concerned about all of these issues as domestic terrorists really beyond the pale. And to your question, no. I mean, we haven't seen what the school board association has alluded to, which is, um, you know, this idea that parents who are at school board meetings are somehow, you know, violent or going beyond what they should be doing. Um, you know, there was the the video that came out of the the father who was rightly incredibly upset at a school board meeting and got arrested. Well, turns out he, he was, you know, understandably as angry as a father could be over what turned out to be the sexual assault of his daughter in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's the incident <laughs> that, that the school board association points to in their letter to try to get the FBI involved and what are across the board um, parents just exercising their civic duty and their rights and obligations to show up and make their voices heard at a local level of government, the school board level, that is the appropriate uh, level for them to be voicing concerns and and really trying to change the conversation around what's happening in, in the public schools that they finance with yeah. their tax dollars. How widespread is the concern among parents? Because you mentioned the yeah. incident with the father. That happened in Loudoun County. That's yeah. a school district just outside of Washington, D.C. It's one of, if not the wealthiest county yeah. In America, that school district just recently implemented a policy that said uh, biological men who identify as women can enter women's right. bathrooms. Uh, so in in the midst of this whole conversation, this man's daughter is raped by a yeah. biological man. He was wearing a skirt in a bathroom. The father gets upset at a school war meeting, and then people start pointing to this man right. as, oh, my goodness, so violent at a school war meeting. School board members don't feel safe, yada, yada. So – are we seeing other incidents like this play out across the country? Is this just a handful of, of random, bizarre events? Yeah. Well, look, what transpired in Loudoun, I mean, Loudoun has become really ground zero for a lot of these concerns. But it's more than just uh, what we've seen recently with the National School Board Association, which, by the way, they issued a non-apology apology <laughs> over the weekend for the letter and basically the tone of the letter and uh, this idea of parents um, qualifying as domestic terrorists, but they did not issue an apology for trying to get the White House involved in the FBI, mm. um, et cetera. So it was really, you know, a pretty weak uh, mea culpa on their part. And since then, 20 state affiliates have distanced themselves uh, from wow. the national affiliate, the National School Board Association. So seeing some really important movement there. Um, look, I mean, if you go across the country, state after state, we're seeing a lot transpire that parents are unhappy with, particularly around content, curricula. And I don't think that's going away anytime soon. And it is, you know, the nature of when you have a government-assigned, government-financed, compelled, government-run school system that you're going to have conflict around the content that's taught. But what we're seeing right now is so far to the left of any content we've really ever seen in the past pushed Mm -hmm. in district schools. Look at California. California, it's currently voluntary, but, you know, school districts throughout the state are already adopting it. But it is their statewide ethnic studies curriculum um, that really pushes this idea that, um, you know, mathematics should be rooted in critical race theory and that mathematics should be used as a tool to see this power struggle Um, We see the same thing in Oregon, trying to eliminate graduation requirements around math and reading. And so parents, I think, are just fed up in general around the direction that public education is going. So, again, it's 
it's this long list of issues right now from yeah. critical race theory to everything that's happened with the National School Board Association to COVID lockdowns. So I don't think it's going away anytime soon, which, of course, means that, among other things, reform within the system Parents also need an immediate exit option through school choice. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk more about that in a minute. Sure. I I do want to discuss how we got here because in yeah. some ways, in some ways, it feels like this happened quickly. And my guess is that's that's not actually accurate. <laughs> but it kind of feels like within the last year, yeah. you know, parents woke up and realized, whoa, a lot of what my child is being taught, a lot of the agenda of my yeah. school board doesn't even necessarily have anything to do with real education, yeah. and it's certainly not what I want my child learning. What was the path to getting yeah. to where we are now? How did it happen? Well, I think you're you're right. It did happen relatively quickly. Um, I, I think not only did it feel that way, but in some respects it did happen quickly uh, because of COVID, right? If, you know, it's cliche to say, was there a silver lining around it? <laughs> but I do think the fact that parents were uh, in the virtual classroom, if you will, with their children throughout 2020, they really got a front row seat to see what their children's school was teaching. And so I think that did hasten the extent to which we saw a pushback, uh, rightly so, on the part of parents. My colleague Jay Green points out that if you look at parent involvement uh, and just parent satisfaction generally with their child's public school, if you look at just, you know, sort of middle America, suburban parents, they've typically been relatively satisfied. Uh, their schools were safe. They thought they were performing pretty well. Well, what we've seen over the past uh, year, year and a half or so, is that um, not only do they not like what they're seeing being taught in their children's classrooms, but these schools have really fallen down on the custodial function of education. Uh, when they keep their doors closed, it means a lot of parents or at home with their children, um, makes the work uh, situation difficult for them. So it wasn't only the content, but uh, that lack of custodial care uh, once schools mm-hmm. closed their doors. And, and that impacted families across the board as well. So, yeah, I do think it was it was pretty quick uh, that we saw, I think, an awakening uh, welcome of a lot of families across the country. Yeah, it has been wild mm-hmm. to see how quickly so many parents yes. have stood up and said, wait a second, exactly, I didn't sign up for this. Now, when it comes to that apology that the National School Boards Association issued, they came out and said, we use language we shouldn't have used. We're sorry. Uh, but regarding the investigation yeah. that uh, that the DOJ has sort of launched and working with, with state and, and local officials to kind of look into these threats, is that still continuing? I mean, was there anything in that apology that said we're, you know, right. we're stopping pressing forward with this? No, I mean, uh, the School Board Association did not backtrack on that point. Okay. Uh, they did not suggest that they no longer want the, the help uh, of the FBI or the DOJ. And look, I mean, even if nothing really comes of it, right, even if we don't see active involvement on the part of whoever, the FBI, the DOJ, it was enough in and of itself to act as an intimidation tactic uh, for parents. And that is, you know, that's frustrating and and scary. And just the fact that something as clear-cut and important as showing up at your school board to make your voice heard around what your child is taught in their public, government-assigned, government-funded, compelled schools, Um, you know, the fact that this would raise to the level of a federal concern, right, Mm -hmm. even if there wasn't some, if there were things happening in schools, uh, to raise it to the federal level of the FBI, right, at first you would want to look at your local 
uh, law enforcement agencies, but to elevate it to the extent that they did, um, you know, it, it, that was clear. I think that's what it was. It was an intimidation tactic, and so that's still hanging out there. Um, so, you know, time will tell. We'll see if if we get further backtracking. But the fact that twenty of these state affiliates have said we no longer either want to be associated, we're pulling out entirely, or we're considering our relationship. I mean, the National School Board Association gets a lot of money from mm. the local affiliate. It's a member organization, not, by the way, entirely unlike the teachers' unions and their philosophy, the National School Board Association. But at the end of the day, the National School Board Association receives taxpayer funding because these are public school districts that pay $15,000 a year or so, depending on the number of students, to be a member of the National School Board Association. Well, where does that local district money come from? At the end of the day, it's taxpayers. And so it's just one additional layer of concern that to see the National School Board Association uh, work honestly hand in glove with the White House <laughs> to put out this letter to potentially label parents as domestic terrorists, the fact that they are effectively taxpayer funded makes it that much worse. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like maybe with, with these other affiliates saying we're not comfortable, the breaks, right. uh, there could be a change of events that's, because yes. people listen to money. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Now, this has really raised a conversation of what is the role that parents have in their child's education yeah. and how much authority should a parent have in deciding what their child learns. The Washington Post uh, published a story last week titled, Parents Claim They Have the Right to Shape Their Kid's School Curriculum. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay, what was your reaction when you saw this article? <laughs> yeah, I mean, ugh, where to begin? I mean, it's just, it's wrong from top to bottom. Not only, I know I continue to say these are taxpayer funded, right? Parents are taxpayers. These, these are public government institutions. And so, of course, they should have a say. But Uh, What was interesting in that article was that article references a 1922 case called Pierce v. Society of Sisters. Mm. What they leave out in the Washington Post article is the most important line from that case, which said, the child is not the mere creature of the state. Um, I think the authors forgot. Maybe they had the Notes version of the the court case. Uh, But that really is, is the most important line. And that's absolutely right. The child is not the mere creature of the state. They belong to their parents. Parents are their first and foremost educators, and so they should be, of course, involved in what their schools are teaching. And again, that all comes back to uh, involvement with your local school boards. School boards have so much say over every aspect of the school day, right, from bus routes to who teaches in the classroom to curriculum and content. Uh, So really, I think it's great to see, it's inspiring to see families really taking charge um, Washington Post might not like it, but uh, it's uh, that, that was quite an article to see. And and what was also rich, there there were just so many lines in that piece that um, were frustrating to me as a reader. But uh, at some point, the authors say, well, if parents aren't happy, they can just pay for private school. Well, <laughs> like where to begin with that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always important to remember that that means having the ability to pay twice, once in your taxes to pay for the public school that you've decided no longer fits your needs, and then a second time for private school tuition, if your public school's not the right fit, doesn't reflect your values, et cetera. Uh, not everybody's in a position to yeah. be able to do that, nor should they have to do that. It's fundamentally this idea of funding the child and not the system and assigning kids to a system that may or may not meet their needs. And so 
without that level of accountability, the ability for parents to vote with their feet and exit, um, schools are, are going to remain just that unaccountable. Yeah. Um, so again, all roads to me lead back to choice. But yes, <laughs> that uh, Washington Post article was quite something. Parents should absolutely be involved in what's taught in their children's schools. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we have seen that over the past really year, we've seen an increase in parents deciding, okay, I'm going to homeschool my child. I'm going to make the sacrifice to pay to put them in a private school. So when it comes to school choice, why why for you is Mm -hmm. that the road that everything leads back to for you? Why is that something that you say, okay, this, this is actually a real solution to the problems that we're seeing in public education? Well, I think it is the policy condition that makes all of the reform possible, really. Um, Again, if parents don't have the ability to vote with their feet and to say, this isn't working for me, then you're basically a a captive audience to whatever government school systems in your neighborhood, which, of course, the school that you can access depends on where you can afford to buy Mm -hmm. a home. Um, So it really is critical. I mean, it provides that competitive pressure that Milton Friedman talked about so long ago that really does catalyze schools to be responsive to the needs of parents. Um, Pat Wolf, who's a researcher at the University of Arkansas, I think had a really great line quite a few years ago about how choice changes the dynamics. He was looking at the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program, which is a phenomenal voucher program in the district And he said choice really moved parents from the margins to the center of their child's educational experience, that they were no longer just these um, passive consumers of whatever education the the state provided them, but they were actively involved, um, passive recipients to active consumers. And so, you know, I think that that really is the heart of it, that schools will continue to receive public money regardless of how well they perform or if they're safe, or if they meet your needs, if families don't have an exit option. So, you know, fund the child, allow the dollars to follow them to whatever provider meets their needs. But, you know, I do, I always come back to to Milton Friedman on this point, because he, you know, really was the sort of modern day father of the the modern day school choice Mm -hmm. movement. And I I think he was exactly right when he said, yes, publicly finance K-12 education, but the public financing of education does not require the government delivery of services. And so that's what we have today. We have government financing and government delivery. So we need to separate that financing of education from the delivery of services. And until we do that, I don't think we'll see the types of improvement we all want to see. One other note on that, too, just in the context of uh, the current debate around critical race theory, it is very important that at the same time we have expansions of choice, which we've seen amazing expansions over the past year. West Virginia now has a near universal education savings account program in place. But at the same time, it is still the case that right now, if you count kids who are in public charter schools, about 90% of kids still attend public schools. And so we do have to be vocal and active and vigilant about the content that these government institutions are imparting on our children and teaching and so it really is, I think, a two two front battle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's both the fight for choice and the fight to make sure that public schools are teaching the values that uh, reflect the values of the community and uh, don't teach that America is a force for evil. Right? Yeah. It's a force for good at the yeah. very you know most basic level. Um, we certainly shouldn't be imparting that to children. Right? Yeah, I think that's such a good point because public education is not going away. One way or another, it's going to remain. And obviously for the students yeah. that are there, we we want them to receive an excellent right. education to be taught 
truth, to be yeah. uh, to be taught how to think and not what to think. Now, I know one of your colleagues, Jay Green, mm-hmm. he has recently uh, – delved into what is happening at a K-12 level in regards to diversity, equity, inclusion training. Talk a little bit about his discovery on this. Well, this is so interesting. And he's doing some of the first empirical work looking at um, how elementary and secondary schools are replicating this phenomenon of diversity, equity, and inclusion, faculty growth, in higher education. And, you know, I think people broadly recognize that is something that has happened in higher ed uh, for many years now, that we see this growth in staff that are these DEI, I think Jay calls them diversocrats, <laughs> but these, these DEI positions. Um, and so if you look, I took a couple of notes from his paper, but if you look in, in higher ed, um, the average university that Jay and his colleague James Paul uh, sampled have more than 45 people who have formal responsibilities for promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, what is amazing to me is that on average, that is 4.2 times more DEI staff than staff who assist students by law uh, who have special needs. What I also think is very interesting is it's 1.4 times larger than the number of professors in these universities' history departments. So many more DEI bureaucrats than history professors. And then for some of these universities, the numbers are just through the roof. The University of Michigan, they found, has 163 people who are identified with having formal DEI responsibilities on campus. Um, UVA, near and dear to my heart, 6.5 DEI faculty for every 100 professors. So we've known for a while this is the case in higher ed. Jay's new report, also with James Paul, looks at, is this the case in K-12 mm-hmm. education? And sure enough, it is. Um, it was really eye-opening for me to see the trend, how it's made its way into the K-12 space. And so they found that uh, in, in K-12, it's uh, chief diversity officers tends to be the, the name around these DEI staff, but they are prevalent in large school districts. So school districts with more than 100,000 students, about 80% of those districts have a CDI uh, staff member in place. Uh, But even if you look at smaller school districts, 15,000 students plus, it's about 40% who have these DEI uh, chief diversity officers or CDOs in place. Um, And the other thing that was really notable about his work with James Paul was that they found it didn't improve outcomes, either in higher ed or in K-12. In higher ed, uh, universities that had just an abundance of these DEI diversocrats, <laughs> that their campus culture was uh, no more welcoming if you look at surveys among students and those without those DEI staff. Hmm. And then in the K-12 space, they found that school districts that had them, that their achievement gaps and outcomes between students was actually worse and worsening. Um, so he's going to continue to track that <laughs> over the years. But, and you know, the other thing I think is interesting with all of this work is that when you look at critical race theory, I think we all know it's not popular (laughs) among parents. It's not really popular among teachers. We have surveys uh, on that forthcoming as well. And so one of the points that Jay makes is that this seems to be the function of these DEI and CDO diversocrats, is that they're basically trying to uh, maintain this uh, orthodoxy around critical race theory in higher ed and in K-12 because it's not very popular. So they're creating this infrastructure to make sure it's there in the long run. Hmm. What what exactly do they 
do? Do we know? <laughs> I mean, are, are they running trainings or that? That's a lot of individuals, yeah. certainly at the college level. And the fact that now so many yeah. uh, K-12 school districts have these diversity, equity, yeah. inclusion trainers as well, uh, individuals on staff. Do we know on a day-to-day yeah. basis how how it's are they, quote-unquote, trying to bring about more <laughs> equality? Right. Well, and like the data show from uh, Jay and James Paul's work, uh, it doesn't appear to be the case that mm-hmm. they are improving, um, I, I don't know if we want to call it equality outcomes or, you know, whatever measure it is yeah. that, um, you know, school climate, campus climate, it doesn't seem to be improving academic achievement. Uh, the narrowing of achievement gap. So it is a, a big question, right? So what what are these folks doing? Um, you know, I it varies from the higher ed sphere to the K-12 sphere. Um, but I think you hit the nail on the head. A lot of it really is trainings. We know that schools are paying tens of thousands of dollars to uh, critical race theory trainers, right, to Ibram Kendi and Robin D'Angelo and other folks who are pushing this ideology as well. So it's a whole infrastructure now between the the trainers, the outside consultants that are making $25,000 an hour when they come to do these trainings, uh, all the way down to these CDOs and DEI faculty. Yeah. Lindsay, it feels like we're in a tug of war right yeah. now between your parents on one side that are saying we got to push the brakes. Yeah. And then you have a lot of school boards, uh, unions on yeah. the other side that are saying, no, we, we need to be teaching critical race theory, gender identity. Who's going to win this tug of war? Yeah. yeah. Well, we will see. Um, my money's always with the parents <laughs> um, because, you know, they they know their child better than anybody else. They want what's best. They will do whatever it takes to be involved uh, and to make their voices heard. So I think in the long run, we're going to, uh, when all the dust settles, see that schools are ultimately, uh, if not more responsive to parents, becoming a little more responsive. And so I'm optimistic on that front, certainly. And look, I will say, too, you know, it's always important to think about, you know, we've always said the teachers unions are distinct from teachers, right? That the union heads uh, are distinct often from the political positions and philosophy of the members who they purport to represent. I think the same thing holds for school boards as well, Mm -hmm. in large part, that school board members, if you look across the country, and there have been a few surveys on this now, when it comes to their politics, they're pretty evenly split. Um, about a third identifies conservative, about a third liberal, and then a third independent. We don't know what that independent slice looks like, but I think it's highly likely that the national affiliate, the National School Board Association, fails to take into account or really represent a lot of the folks on the ground in their local school boards. So I think there's a similar dynamic there that we see with teachers unions and teachers union heads. Yeah. Lindsay, you are doing such great work on this issue. Uh, tell us how we can follow your work, keep up with what you do. Yes. Well, you can go to heritage.org slash education. We have a lot of resources available uh, on school boards, how to become involved. We have a ton of research between my colleague, uh, Jonathan Butcher, and Mike Gonzalez and Jay Green on critical race theory, if you have questions about that. Uh, how to get involved there as well. We have an entire uh, microsite, I think we call it, on critical race theory that you can get to from our education page. So tons of good resources there. We also have a curriculum resource initiative. If you're looking for curriculum to use either homeschooling or to to make the case for with your school boards, we have a lot of good resources there too. Excellent. Lindsay Burke, the director of the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Lindsay, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. 
With that, that's going to be it for this week's Tuesday edition of Problematic Women. Join us on Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please go ahead and subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. I hope you all have a great Tuesday and Wednesday, and we will be back with you guys on Thursday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.